Robots Radio presents... Hey everybody, welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode. And this bonus episode is truly bonus, Brad. This was not even planned in our schedule. But we had to hop on the hype train for this new movie. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a little thing called Hamilton. So we decided to watch Hamilton over the weekend and put down our initial thoughts on it. We're going to do a full review of Disney Plus's filmed version of the Broadway stage play Hamilton. And while we do it, Brad, we are going to sip on three different whiskeys from BC Merchants, which is a distributor that contacted us and sent us three bottles of whiskey to try from two different brands. The first brand is called Resilient, and we have their 14-year bourbon and their six-year rye. And the second brand is called Further, and we have their two-year rye whiskey to try. So we have lots of drinking, lots of talking to do today. Let's jump right in, Brad. We watched Hamilton. What do you think? Bob, I am somebody who enjoys the occasional musical, um, but they're not like my bread and butter. It's it's not something I seek out, you know, like, oh, man, a musical came out. I, I got to go see it. So so it was fun to get into this. Um, but I will say, Bob, I don't really know if we should be calling this a movie or not because the Oscars themselves have declared it ineligible. So I I don't even know if we should be talking about it. Yeah, this is ridiculous. We should probably get this out of the way ahead of time here. But the Oscars have ruled that Hamilton is not eligible for next year's ceremony, which is ridiculous because there's only been like 20 movies that came out this year at all because everything's been postponed by the Rona. So they basically said they have a a, a small rule in their book that if a stage play is filmed and it is essentially unchanged and just a record of a stage play, that it is ineligible for the Oscars, which is ridiculous because we're going to get into talking about this, but... This is actually cut together from two different performances in front of a live audience and then an actual a third performance in front of no audience uh, where they got all the close-ups for this movie. So it is a, a pretty intricately edited together document. And yes, it's a stage play, but there are movies that are designed to look like stage plays for artistic purposes, and those are all eligible for the Oscars. So this is another one of those areas, Brad, where I think the Oscars are just shooting themselves in the foot. Like, you could get so many viewers just by making this a competitive movie in all the categories, and they're not allowing themselves to do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you think about it, like Birdman was essentially the exact same thing. It's just a stage play. So why don't you just put it on in Oscars? Come on now. It really should be in the... <laughs> I mean, like, it would make the conversations a lot more interesting. It, it really would. This has been such a down year if you are a cinephile, or even if you're just a common moviegoer fan. I mean, I remember, Bob, you and I were planning on going to see a re-release of Apollo 13 in theaters, and I was really excited for that. And then, boom, everything got shut down. So, Oscars, get with the times. Like, put it on your list. It's going to cause some great publicity. It's fun to talk about. It's a great movie. Well, Brad, on that note, I'm excited to hear that you called it a great movie. You know, you you said that you don't have a huge background with musicals. I I do. I grew up doing musical theater. I really love musicals, but I'm not, like, the, the world's biggest theater fan like I don't go see musicals a lot they're they're just too prohibitively expensive and I feel like when you catch the touring version of a musical they're not always as good and so Hamilton has been incredibly hyped over the last five years and so much so that I was kind of turned off from ever seeing it I knew that I could never afford to go see it but in addition to that I actually have never even listened to the soundtrack for this movie before like the Broadway recording of it so I tried to go into this movie as cold as possible, having never seen any clips from Hamilton. 
I really kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, I kept myself pure from this from this musical <laughs> until we got into this movie. And Brad, I was blown away. This was the most entertaining thing I have seen in I don't know how long. Like if we're talking theater, movies, television shows, music, this is the most entertaining piece of art I have experienced in, I don't know, at least a year. Bob, I, I'm I'm pretty close there with you. It, it did start off extremely rough for me. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of spoken word. Um, there's some hip hop music that I enjoy, but like for the most part, I it's just not a genre that I've really engaged with very much. And so the first opening song, and and not just the first song, but the first few songs, I, I really struggled with, and I thought I was in for two hours and forty minutes of spoken word. And I was like, I was ready to shut it off. I got a text message from you about 10 minutes into the movie that just said, ha ha ha, I hate this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really did, Bob. I, I was not a fan. Um, but I think that as the musical goes on, as it gets more into the storytelling, uh, more into the singing aspect of it rather than spoken word style of music, it really takes off. And the characters are... Some of the most likable characters I've seen in a show in I don't know how long. It's a nuanced story. You see things from the protagonist's point of view as well as the antagonist's point of view. Um, stylistically, it's beautiful and interesting. The costumes are are just over-the-top great. It's a really fun romp of a musical that, by the by, is extremely historically accurate. I, I think that might have been one of the things that blew me away the most, is that based on what I read about Alexander Hamilton and Burr and Lafayette and George Washington, like, this is an extremely accurate, you know, historical monument to the life of Alexander Hamilton. And that made me like it so much more than the initial impression. Yeah, and along with the historical accuracy of it, they... They lean into the flaws of each person. Like you said, they tell it from the protagonist's point of view, from the antagonist's point of view. Hamilton is a deeply flawed person, and you get that up close and personal in this musical. And just to give a little bit of background on it, Brad, it was written, it was conceived by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who had basically burst onto the scene of Broadway with a show called In the Heights that he had written. And while he was basically on vacation from doing that show, he picked up a book that he thought would be a good long read to take on vacation. It was Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton. And as he read it, he thought to himself after a few chapters, this is a hip hop story. This is a story of somebody who came from nothing, you know, an immigrant who had, whose life had been devastated. And the only way that he could pick himself up and get out of that situation was to write his way out. And he was like, this is the story of a hip hop artist. And so he conceived this thing that he wanted to call the Hamilton mixtape. He wrote the uh, the very first song from the musical, Alexander Hamilton. It took him like a year to write. And then he gets a call from the White House that the Obamas are wanting to do a, a night of spoken word performances. And they wanted him to perform something from In the Heights. And they said, hey, if you have anything on like the American experience, you can totally do that, too. And he was like, well, by the way, <laughs> I'm writing a mixtape about Alexander Hamilton. And so he he performs that whole first track at the White House in 2009 it takes him another year to write the second song in the musical, which is called My Shot. And then after that, they realize this could be an entire musical. And so in rapid succession, they pound out the rest of these songs. I think the final product is something like 34 songs. This is not just a musical. This is 
Literally, this is an opera. Like, everything is sung. There is almost no dialogue. And even the dialogue that you do get that's spoken is is rhythmically spoken. And, yeah, it's, li- you know, it's lyrical. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of Les Mis in that way, where, like, everything is sung. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it, Brad. It's it's an opera that's done in a hip-hop style. The wordplay is incredible. And, and to see the development of it from, you know, it's just going to be one track or a mixtape to... No, we can make a full-blown opera out of this. It's pretty incredible. It, it really, really is. The The musical has so much to offer, but I think to really talk about it much more, I, I'm really staring down this resilient rye, and I, I really want to try it, Bob. What say you? I think it's a great place for us to pause, Brad. Let's get into this whiskey. All right, so the first whiskey that we are trying today is this resilient rye. Now, this brand, Resilient, is sourced whiskeys. So uh, in the case of their rye, it looks like they're getting their whiskey from a place called MGP in Indiana, which is this basically just this gigantic factory that produces all kinds of whiskeys that brands then go and buy and sell under their own labels. So this is a six-year aged rye, which is not something you see all the time, Brad. You know, when, uh, when we did our interview with New Riff in Cincinnati, the co-founder there, Jay Arisman, was telling me about their rye. And said that distillers basically know amongst themselves that rye as a grain matures quicker than corn for bourbon. And so you get a lot more maturity and and well-rounded notes out of a rye at like two years than you would get out of a bourbon at two years. A rye that's been stocked away for six years is really kind of out of the ordinary. And I'm excited to get into this. We we have barrel number one of Resilient Rye. So we are drinking out of the very first barrel they commercially produced. This is a 116-proof rye whiskey. The mash bill on it is 95% rye, 5% malted barley, so it's it's very, very much a rye product. I can't wait to get into it, Brad. It has this great dark color, way more than you normally see in a rye. I was about to say, Bob, all the things that you just said are things I read on the bottle, and I was like, man, like we can talk about Hamilton all we want, but I really want to get into this rye. <laughs> well, what are you picking up on the nose of this resilient rye, Brad? Honestly, Bob, for this being 116 proof, it might be the least alcohol forward cask. Uh, is it cask proof or? I would assume so at this at this proof point. Yeah, yeah I, th- I would think I, yeah. so. It's the most uh, approachable cask proof whiskey I think I've ever smelled. Yeah. And, and I was really surprised. I had to take a couple nosings of it and check the bottle because I was like, is this a bourbon? It has like these incredible bourbony notes to it. Really soft caramel notes. Not a lot of rye on the nose for me. Like, it's definitely there, but it doesn't have that really, like, punch-you-in-the-face strong rye scent that you get on some younger ryes. I get, like, almost a soft, like, a bubblegum kind of scent to this. It it just has these candy sweet notes that you don't really usually get on a rye. Well, it it makes me really wonder if we've ever really had a fully matured rye product before. That's true. You know, like like who knows what happens to rye when it's aged for six years? Because normally you drink it at two years or three years or maybe four years. So this just might be a very mature expression of rye that we're not used to seeing. Well, let's give it a sip and find out, Brad. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is this is pretty incredible. Um, oh. re- really dark, really rich, sweet. It does. It tastes more like a bourbon than a rye. And, I, you know, if you are a hardcore rye person, I don't know if you'd like that or not. But for me, it just it has all of the great sweetness and char of a bourbon barrel, 
but with some rye graininess on top of it. it. It doesn't taste like a high rye bourbon. It just tastes like a rye product that has somehow managed to like grab all of the great sweetness out of a bourbon and attach it to itself. This is really, really good. Bob, I'm going to make a bold statement here. This might be the best whiskey we've ever had on the podcast. Wow. wow. Brad, really? This is so stinking good. Like it's sweet up front. The barrel proof hits you on the back end, but it doesn't overwhelm you. And then right in the middle, I get all of these beautiful spicy notes that just, I don't know, they enunciate the sweetness and yet they they complement it. Bob, this is so good. Well, listen, I, I'm not quite there with you, but I will I will say this is a fantastic product. I would give it at least an eight, maybe an eight and a half on the taste. Sounds like Brad is at like a 10 plus on the taste. Yeah, I am. I'm blown away. When it comes to the finish, I will say this. It's it's very mouthwatering. It doesn't dry your mouth out at all, but there's not a ton of flavor on the finish. Um, it's short. It's really pleasant. I think that's the thing that it has going for it. That, you know, it doesn't leave a lingering taste in your mouth, but it doesn't leave any bad taste in your mouth either. I, I liked this finish a lot. I will say that it, it definitely was a step down from the taste. I don't know, Bob. I the For me, the finish, you know, stuck around for just long enough to appreciate the spiciness that you get, but it didn't overwhelm it. And I was left, honestly, with that initial palette of sweetness. I think it is a really great finish. You know, if I if I was giving this a score... It would probably be in the 45 to 48 out of 50 range. Oh, my gosh. Like, like this would be up there. I am very glad that I have a decent amount left in the bottle. This is going to be a special one that I only share on occasion. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I'd probably be somewhere in the 35 to 38 range. This is a really, really solid rye. Again, if you like the the sort of sour sort of grainy notes that a rye typically has. I don't know what you would think of this because it has so much sweetness to it, but I would highly, highly recommend this. This is one of the better whiskeys we've ever had on the podcast. Brad, I don't know what that means for the two that have to follow this act, uh, but as far as this one goes, it gets a stamp of approval for me. Oh, for sure. This is a spectacular whiskey that I will be sharing with some friends sometime soon here. All right, Brad, let's get back into talking about Hamilton. What do you say? Let's get to it. So we are getting back into talking about Hamilton. We have not talked about the music yet. We have not talked about the actors yet. Brad, I want to start by talking about the people that we see on stage. You know, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Leslie Odom Jr. are the two huge stars that came out of this. Leslie Odom Jr. actually won a Tony uh, for Best Lead Actor in a Musical. Lin-Manuel Miranda was nominated. Like, what do you think of these two? I think we kind of have to talk about them. They are, you know, the, the two main characters in this show. Baba, I'm I'm not going to lie. I like Lin-Manuel in this movie more as the movie goes on. But I I just I have a dislike for spoken word and the majority of his style of presentation comes across in a spoken word way. So while I I think objectively that he did a great spectacular job, I just personally didn't connect with his performance 
as much as I did with Leslie Odom as Aaron Burr. I, I really loved him. There's a lot of other characters we could talk about, but of the two, I just found myself really, really loving on Aaron Burr quite a bit. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing about both of their performances, like from an acting point of view, is that they're both doing different things extremely well. So with Lin-Manuel Miranda, like he had done quite a bit of TV. He had done a little bit of film. And I think that more than anyone else in the cast, Lin-Manuel Miranda knows where the camera is and knows when to milk a close up. And I really noticed it in some of the scenes where he had to cry, like especially in the scene where uh, towards the end of the film, like where his wife forgives him for cheating on her repeatedly and for basically leading their son to his death. He breaks down and cries. And I think that his acting style is more naturalistic than anyone else in the cast. He doesn't usually get called out for how good his acting is. But in terms of on-camera presence, I think he's fantastic. Leslie Odom Jr. also had quite a bit of uh, TV and, and film credits as well. But I think what he does really beautifully is he's not super theatrical because some of the actors in this cast are playing, you know, to the back row like you're supposed to do in, in the theater. Leslie Odom really balances the two, I think. There are some numbers where he's big and broad and, you know, singing to the the uh, the balcony. And then there's other moments where he also knows how to internalize really, really well, especially at the end of the movie, you know, after their their big climactic duel, when he's meditating upon what effect that had on his life. I think they both really, really know how to use the camera. And that's not something that really ever happens in Broadway. These things don't typically get filmed. And so I think it's more noticeable with other actors than it is with them. But I think they make that transition really, really seamless. Yeah, those those two really are the, the engines that keep this musical moving. Um, but outside of those two, I mean, you have so many spectacular performances. You know, I, I think that George Washington, uh, played by Christopher Jackson, does an amazing job. I think that Angelica Schuyler, played by Renee, Renee Goldsberry, is, is spectacular. Um, there, there's just so many people in this movie musical that are just over the top. Their voices are amazing. Uh, Bob, what were some of your favorite performances from the lesser characters in this movie? Well, I think those would be the two that I would initially point to. And it's because they're they're such good theatrical performers. I do think that they're very good at conveying emotion as well. But they get probably the two biggest showstoppers in the whole show as well. Angelica gets this great song called Satisfied, where basically you find out through like an internal monologue that she's in love with Hamilton, who's marrying her sister. And it is just a powerhouse performance. And the same can be said for Chris Jackson as Washington. He gets this great song called One Last Time in the second act when you find out that George Washington is stepping down as president. And both of those numbers are designed to showcase their talents and really bring the house down. And they totally do. And I think especially like when you know this is the showstopper song and it still works, that it absolutely deserves to be called out and praised. And so those two would be the next ones on my list, Brad. I do think like moving a little further down the list, David Diggs as Lafayette and as uh, Thomas Jefferson is just like a ball of charisma. Anytime he's on stage, your eye is immediately drawn to him, especially as Jefferson. He's so good as Jefferson. So you start to get into those characters that are like designed to be the crowd pleasers like Jefferson and then King George III, who literally just comes out as comic relief, but it's just, it's so good. I think those two characters as well need to be called out for for how well they were portrayed. 
Yeah, I was going to say, dude, Jonathan Groff as King George is spectacular. You know, he only has I think he has two songs and he's maybe on stage for a few other moments of the of the show. But he just steals the stage as soon as he gets up there. And honestly, even beyond, you know, his charisma and his performance, just the the insight into history that he offers, you know, to think about King George and losing the war and just kind of being like, yeah, man, you you know, your little revolution was fun and all. But let's see what it's like for you to try to actually rule, like to actually set up laws and rule your own country. And, oh, your leader's just going to step down after eight years. Like, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Right, right. Like that kind of snarky insight into history is just so, so well done. Well, it's well portrayed by Jonathan Groff, but I think this is one of those areas, too, where you have to give a ton of credit to Lin-Manuel Miranda for having the inspiration to make King George a character. Like, he's not involved in any of the actual occurrences of the show, and yet they make him a character that comes out and basically comments on everything, like a Greek chorus. And he sings the same number three times. The first time he comes out, it's this funny comic relief And it's in the style of like, it almost sounds like a song that would be in like high school musical. It's this really jaunty pop tune where he's singing a breakup, a breakup song to America, essentially. Right. But the more they bring him out, the more his presence starts to be really, really valued, I think, because he the second time he comes out, the song goes from being called You'll Be Back to What Comes Next, because the Americans have won the war. All right. Well, let's see what happens now. And then the third time, it's when uh, George Washington has chosen to step down and John Adams is going to become president. And he, on his throne in England, recognizes they are going to eat this man alive. This will be fun to watch. And I think having that outside commentary really does kind of put you in the mindset. You know, we read about American history and the Revolutionary War and we, we act like, you know, they signed the Declaration of Independence. We fought a really quick war. They had a constitution in place and then everything was good. No, I think what this show does so well is it shows us the idea of the American experiment. They were making this up as they went. They were kind of flying by the seat of their pants a little bit. And, you know, for things to shake out the way they did is incredibly fortunate. But in the moment, it had to seem like total chaos. And I think the King George character is such a great touch because it reminds us in the 21st century of that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to look back at the Revolutionary War and the founding of America and just kind of gloss over the Articles of Confederation. But those were really terrible and almost led to the downfall of our nation. Absolutely. You know, they, they had to completely revamp all of that in order to get us to where we are today with, you know, our form of government and the balance of power. And and so I I just love how honest a look this musical is at history. You know, you said earlier that its characters are flawed, and I love that. You know, you don't have a squeaky clean protagonist. And honestly, I think one of the reasons I love it is because I think that it offers a good way of looking at history to say, hey, like, we can look at Hamilton. He did some good things. He did some bad things. The man worked way too much, and he cheated on his wife, and He created a system that a lot of people didn't like at the time. But in the end, he's a part of our history. So let's learn about him. Let's make it interesting. You know, I think this whole musical could become a subgenre of musicals, of like historical musicals. I I don't know. It's just it's interesting. Well, Brad, while we are riding this wave of positivity, let's check out this second in the resilient whiskey line. What do you say? Let's get to it. 
All right, so the second whiskey we're trying today is Resilient Bourbon. This is a 14-year bourbon uh, that actually comes from Tennessee. It is, again, a sourced whiskey, meaning it wasn't made by the Resilient Company. It was purchased by them. And this particular whiskey, it, it is barrel proof, but it's a lower proof than what you might think for a barrel proof. It's 110.4 proof. Uh, the mash bill is 84% corn, 8% uh, barley, 8% rye. Brad, I'm really excited to try this. We don't typically get 14-year bourbons. This is, you know, kind of experimental in a way. It can backfire. Bourbon is not like scotch where you can age it forever and it just gets exponentially better. You do hit a point with bourbon where the aging kind of has an adverse effect. And we don't usually see bourbons aged much beyond 12 years. So 14 is kind of right on that cusp of like, what's this going to be like? Baba, I'm not sure the note that I got, but, but my first nosing of this, like I had to pull my nose away from the glass. There was something in it that my my body just jumped away from. And like, as I put my nose back into the glass, it it doesn't smell great. Huh. Yeah, I'm not getting that. Um, Honestly, for me, the, the corn is the thing that stands out the most. The 84% corn mash bill. You know, sometimes you associate smell with taste. This smells the way that like a buttered popcorn jelly belly tastes. Like it, sm it smells sweet. It smells like butter. It smells like corn. I do get like underneath that some of that great peanut buttery kind of goodness you get with really well-aged bourbons. Um, this This kind of smells like a more watery version of Henry McKenna, which is interesting because it's higher proof than Henry McKenna. So it's definitely not watered down any. It just doesn't have quite the punch on the nose that something like a Henry McKenna would have. Yeah, Bob, as I get into the flavor, it's not it's not as bad as I was initially given to think. Um, it's definitely buttery. I think buttery is a great word with with a little bit of peanut flavor to it. Um, it's nice and thick. It's good, but it's not great. I, I think it's a solid whiskey. It's a fun barrel-proof whiskey that's not going to overpower you. Um, but I don't know. There's something about that initial nose that just really threw me off. I think this is a really interesting study in contrast here between like my preferences and your preferences because you typically like rye more than I do. And with bourbons, I like mine to have that great peanut butter scent to them. This This kind of had that. I mean, I will say it's thinner than I expected. And you mentioned that it was thick, but like if you guys could see the color on this, it, it might be the darkest bourbon I've ever had on this podcast. Like it's just, it's so dark. Um, so it's thinner than I thought it would be, but it does have some classic caramel bourbon notes. It has some peanut butter. Mm -hmm. And then I get a little bit of a banana, not a lot, but just a little bit. This is right up my alley in terms of what I like in the flavor profile of a bourbon. Is it the best I've ever had in that department? No, but I probably would give it like an 8 out of 10 on the taste. I like it a lot. Yeah, honestly, Bob, if, if I had to give like a final score on this, I think I would probably arrive at like the 28 to 32 area. It's an addition that I would probably put on my shelf at some point, you know, if I had a little bit extra money. But, it, you know, it's not over the top for me. It's It's just good. It's a solid whiskey. Yeah, I actually, Brad, I think I, I like this a lot more than you did. The finish is a, a bit more alcohol than I'd like, but it's a good finish. I think the worst things about it are still solid, and the things I like a lot are like an 8 out of 10. So you're right, Brad. This is probably in that like 7.5 out of 10 range for me, but I think it's a really, really well-balanced whiskey. I don't think I got a lot that was negative off of any one thing from the nose to the taste to the finish. 
Uh, it does sound like, especially for you, this is a step down from the rye, but I would still recommend this bourbon. I really liked it a lot. Yeah, I would recommend it. It, it, it. For me, it's a big step down from the rye. I, I'm excited to get back into that rye just kind of on my own at some point. But it's, you know, it's still solid. It's good. Try it out. Go for it. It's good stuff. All right. Well, let's get back into talking about Hamilton. Okay, so that was Resilient Bourbon. We're getting back into talking about Hamilton. And Brad, we've gone this far without really talking about the music. And it's kind of surprising because this entire thing is just music. But one thing that I wanted to point out that really struck me was when when the show starts, it's pretty much just this rhythmic spoken word hip hop format. And I loved it because I think that the wordplay is incredible. And actually, we're going to link in the show notes to this really cool interactive tool we found from the Wall Street Journal that breaks down the rhyme patterns and how intricate Lin-Manuel Miranda's writing is. I think it's totally worth checking out. But what struck me is that as the show went on, they did so many different genres and varieties of songs, and they did them so well. You start with this hip-hop theme, and then you move into sort of like, almost like a 90s R&B with the song Helpless that Eliza sings when she's falling in love with Hamilton. It reminded me of like early Mariah Carey. And I was like, oh, okay. So you're doing that pretty well too. And then King George comes out and he's doing, you know, a song that sounds like something that could be taken from, I don't know, Rent or something. It has that kind of pop rock background. And as the show continues to go on, it gets more and more varied. And I think it's just a a really positive sign of a creator in Lin-Manuel Miranda who knows what he's doing, knows how to give each character their own unique flair, and to tailor the music to suit what the story needs at each point. Yeah, Bob, one of my favorite examples um, of just switching it up throughout the movie, I really love the 10, the dual commandments that they do. Oh, yeah. That, like, of all the kind of more spoken word hip hop type of songs, that one just it just flowed so well and it had just such a good beat to it that keeps you slowly drumming forward to you know towards death essentially it it was just spectacular and then the refrain of that at the end of the the musical you know with the duel between burr and hamilton themselves it just makes for a compelling musical along with things like the cabinet battles in the second act you know you you get to this point where I don't know. They're trying to give you all sorts of exposition, what's happening in the country, you know, what the big debates of the time are with the whiskey tax and the whiskey rebellion. And they do it in the form of George Washington hosting like a yo mama rap battle of Jefferson versus Hamilton. Those those cabinet battles are just over the top spectacular. Yeah. And and like you said, there's sometimes where you can tell Lin-Manuel Miranda switches up the genre of the music for character reasons. And there's sometimes that he does it because he knows he has to do it for plot reasons. It would be incredibly boring for them to just stand and talk about where to establish a bank in the new, you know, in the newly formed country 
and why it should be in Virginia versus New York, whatever. But to have it be uh, basically epic rap battles of history between Jefferson and Hamilton and to have the rhymes be so good, it you really are invested in what sounds like incredibly boring history on paper. But again, it just shows the inventiveness that's at play here. Yeah. And like the uh, the song that they that Jefferson and his friends sing about, like, wanting to be in the room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just speaks so powerfully about backroom politics and the danger that that entails. If you don't do things out in the light, then people are going to be suspicious of yeah. your intentions. And well, so, like, it's just it's just so powerful, man. Well, and this is the thing is, like, I feel like I'm going to become a broken record because everything I like about this musical is so intertwined with other things I like. So that song, The Room Where It Happens, is in this kind of like, I don't I don't even know what kind of genre you would call it. Like it it has this this R, you know, um, I don't even want to call it R&B, almost like a soul type thing where it, it's definitely a departure from the rap battles that come before it. But it's also used to really help characterize Aaron Burr. And that's another thing. Like you keep getting these great songs where you find out everybody's inner motivation. And that song ends with Burr saying like, I want to be in the room. He finally admits to himself, I'm jealous and I'm going to do what it takes to get into the room where it happens. And so I keep bouncing back and forth between I love that there's this variety of musical genres, but then also praising the fact that there's a variety because it helps us tailor each character to what the needs of the show are. And actually, David Diggs, who played Thomas Jefferson, he commented on this. He said, like, if you really listen closely, even in the raps, Lin-Manuel Miranda has tailored each one to the character. So I guess George Washington's raps, like his his flow, his style is very metronomic, like it's very on the beat because it's supposed to reflect that George Washington is a very straight-laced, regimented military man. Whereas like he said his character Lafayette in the first act starts out not even really being able to say much because he's French, but then by the end of that act he has the fastest rap of anybody in the whole show. It's it's this really, really well done, nuanced thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing where, yes, he wants to keep things interesting by changing up the genres, but he's doing it for a reason. Well, and that's and that's like the beautiful thing about this musical, right? In general, a lot of musicals, sure, they have the ballad versus, you know, the fast, frenetically paced um, action song. But in general, a lot of musicals have just the exact same feel to every single one of their songs. And this one isn't that way. You get a legitimate variety of genres and musical types going on here. And like you said, they're used to characterize the characters. It's just it's just incredibly well done. Well, Brad, before we give our final opinions of this movie, we have one more whiskey to review. So what do you say we move into trying this further rye whiskey? All right, so our final whiskey for the day is Further Brand Rye Whiskey. This is a straight rye. It is a two-year rye that comes from MGP in Indiana. This is going to taste different. I just, I know it already, Brad. Looking at the color of this to that six-year resilient rye, it's it's night and day. I love the packaging on this. They actually gave it its name, Further Rye, because it's based off of uh, the author Ken Kesey, the guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest who was big into the psychedelic in the 1960s and further was the name of his bus that he would take around with him and just pick up hippies. And so this is like a celebration of that. Uh, It's really, really cool packaging. I love the bottle on it. Uh, But Brad, we are not here to talk about the bottle. We're here to talk about what is inside. 
And so what are you picking up on this two-year rye whiskey? Honestly, Bob, this uh, this rye is young. Yes. <laughs> this is this smells like what I said earlier. You know, we're used to a younger, immature rye. This is right back down to earth. You yeah, know, if the last sure. one was out there in in orbit as far as greatness, this one just smells like normal rye. You know, it's a little bit spicy. It's a little bit young. It's a little bit offensive to the nose, which I think is kind of the point of a rye sometimes. Um, and yeah, it's it's fine. It's okay. Here's the thing. I actually really like young rye. Like when we did the few brand rye, I've heard people say this tastes young. And I'm like, I like that because I like it when rye hasn't quite hit the point where it's harsh and you get those really great floral and fruit notes still when a rye can be kind of gentle. And that's kind of what I get here. To use a word that we use a lot with Irish whiskey, it's a very bright rye. It has a lot of pear for me. It has a lot of apple for me. And I really, really like that. Some people don't like their ryes to smell like that because you're right, Brad. It does smell young. It definitely smells like it's only two years old. But this is actually probably my preferred way to drink rye. So I'm really on board for this so far. What do you say we give it a sip? All right. So you're right, Brad. It's definitely young. A lot of the things that we picked up on the nose are there, though. It definitely has like that sort of stone fruit taste. I couldn't put my finger on like, is it peach? Is it plum? But it's kind of something in that wheelhouse. Lots of sweetness on this. More than I'm used to with the rye. I don't know if you're getting this note, Brad, but like almost saline kind of like it's 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 almost like sweet and and salty. I really like it. It's not very complex. It's a very thin, young rye, but it's in my wheelhouse. If I had to score the taste on this, I'd probably give it like a six and a half to a seven. Super solid young rye. Yeah, it's it's really pleasant. It's not offensive in any way. Um, the youngness that you get on the nose kind of dissipates a little bit on the taste like you still notice it. But it's not as harsh as it comes across when you're when you're smelling it. So I think it's a it's a solid, fun little whiskey that, you know, if you enjoy rye whiskey and you can get your hands on it, like go for it. It's pretty good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I will say this is 101 proof. Uh, so like on the finish, especially, it's a little bit like I use the word sometimes chesty. It has that Kentucky hug going down. Uh, you can definitely tell this is not 80 proof. It has some alcohol to it. But overall, I like this a lot. And I will say unequivocally, the Resilient Rye is the better rye. It's the more well-made rye. I would probably recommend it above this. But when it comes to the way I like to drink rye on like an everyday basis, I would reach for this as an everyday sipper way more often than I would that Resilient. This is a really solid, crowd-pleasing, young rye. Yeah, Bob. And honestly, that's a great way to describe Hamilton. It's young. It's fun. It's crowd pleasing. I would say the quality is much higher for the musical than this whiskey. But this musical has a lot going on for it. What say you? We kind of finish up our review of this phenomenal Broadway musical. Let's get to it, Brad. All right, so before we give our final scores, we have to talk about the fact that we're not reviewing the Broadway musical experience here. We're reviewing a movie. We're reviewing a filmed version of a Broadway musical. And Brad, I want to hear, just before we wrap up here, what do you think of this as a movie? 
I've seen filmed versions of stage plays before. And you basically get like two angles. You get one that's in the orchestra pit and you get one that's like way up in the mezzanine. And I really loved the additional use of the close-ups here because they were almost like those Emmanuel Lubezki Birdman type close-ups sometimes. And I thought that it really did a great job at, at sort of breaking that invisible barrier between people in the crowd and people on stage. You know, I mean, is it is it like changing the game as far as movie making goes? No, it's very simply done. It's very simply edited. But I thought that this worked really well as a movie, not just as me watching some dude's, you know, camcorder recording of a Broadway musical. Right. Well, I think the danger that you could run into is, you know, th there's a lot of musicals that could just be filmed from one shot where you see the whole stage. It's somewhat close, but, you know, not too close. And you just get the whole stage and you watch people move around. And I, I like I feel like you could just do a static shot like that and say, yeah, here, here's Hamilton if you really want to watch it. But you can tell, you know, like you said, they filmed this movie over three separate performances, two of them with a live audience. And you can just feel the heat and the energy and the life that they're bringing every single time. And I think by filming it three separate times, you're able to get a cut that feels smooth and whole and you, you get everything that you have to offer if you are watching this over film rather than in person. So as much as like, yes, go see it in person if you can. But man, this is a great alternative. Absolutely. Well, Brad, I think that we've said about all we need to say. I'm really anxious to hear what your final score on this would be, because the last I talked to you was a text message that said, ha ha, I hate this. And it sounds like, at least in your mind, the musical redeemed itself as it went along. So why don't you fill us in on your final thoughts and your final score for Hamilton? Yeah, Bob, I, this is a great movie. It's a great musical. It's sharp. It's witty. It's funny. Um, it touches on a lot of modern topics without being grating or uh, posturizing in any way. I would probably give it a nine or a nine and a half out of ten. It's up there as one of the better musicals I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I completely agree, Brad. I was blown away by this, and I went in thinking, okay, nothing can be as good as the hype that this thing has received. And immediately I'm hit with the influences of Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm hit with the, the incredible lyricism of his hip-hop. I'm hit with the gospel choir influences on the, the chorus. I think some of the songs are just incredible. I loved Burr's Wait For It. You know, I, I love most of the songs in this musical. I will say that a couple of them were very clearly, they seemed a little rushed in terms of like writing the lyrics out. Not every song can be a 10 out of 10. And I totally get that. And every musical's like that, especially when your show has 34 songs in it. But Brad, even though, you know, one or two of the songs are kind of clunkers, even though this is not rewriting the book when it comes to movie making, like I said, this is the most entertaining, enjoyable time I have had watching a movie in probably a year. I'm going to give this a nine and a half out of 10. This just blew me away. I've already watched it twice in anticipation for this podcast. Like, I'm still not sick of it. I'll probably watch it at least one more time, and it is totally worth it. And what I love about this is that Disney, by buying the rights to this recording of the production, is, is kind of democratizing the whole thing. Like, I would never be able to afford to go see Hamilton. And I really hate that, because the tickets are so astronomically priced on the secondary market. But now... I'm so happy that I got to experience this 
for my $7 subscription to Disney Plus. And I got to see what all the hype was about and it totally lived up to it. And that they made a version of it that didn't lose anything in translation. I just cannot recommend this highly enough. Well, Bob, I I was looking up some stats for this and in the decade of 2010 to 2019, this peaked as the 11th best album in the entire decade for for any album. This is including the likes of Post Malone, Kendrick Lamar, Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran, like this is the 11th highest album for the whole decade. And I thought you might find this interesting, Bob. It came two places ahead of your second favorite musical of the decade, The Greatest Showman. Oh, gosh. Boo. (laughs) Here's my final comment on Hamilton. Watch this 50 times before you watch The Greatest Showman once. (laughs) Actually, just never watch The Greatest Showman. Just don't do it. It's so bad. Well, those are our thoughts on Hamilton, but we want to hear yours. So please get in contact with us. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or let your voice be heard by going onto our anchor.fm webpage. Find us there, record it there, and you'll be on the podcast. Don't forget, if you are following us on Instagram to hashtag your posts with hashtag film whiskey, you'll be entered into our film and whiskey Fridays drawing where you get to choose a sample of whiskey off of our shelves that we will send directly to you. So please get on Instagram, hashtag film whiskey. We'll be back on Monday with another regularly scheduled episode. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.